Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Hello Latino podcast. I'm Olanis Jasmine, and I'm excited for y'all to hear from Joshua Encarnacion, a Dominican-American serving as CEO of Outco and an emotional intelligence and skills coach. Now he's the real deal. He's helped build three tech industry startups and worked in training and recruiter roles for big tech companies like Uber and Google. But in our conversation, he tells us about his life as the young Dominicano navigating adversities, identity, and growth. The best part, he tells a story with a smile. With all the twists and turns, todavía pura risa. Connect with Joshua on LinkedIn and visit www.alco.io. So we can get started. I really am excited for this conversation. And I want to start with um, asking you how you identify. You know, our community has hella identifiers. So how do you identify and why? Yeah, I identify as a one and a half generation Dominican-American proud Afro-Latino. The reasons why my mom was born in Queens, New York, but my dad was born in the Dominican Republic in Nagua, which is a um, north part of the island <clears throat> and my dad's side of the family like for the most part never got to see the United States of America uh, I didn't actually grow up with a majority of them I probably had one or two uncles that he was close with that were um, in New York and in Massachusetts but they didn't speak English so my first first language was Spanish it wasn't until first grade that I was actually put into English speaking class. And then I had this funny accent because I was raised in New York, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But, um, and on my mom's side, super American, um, her mom mm. was the one that immigrated from the Dominican Republic, but she went through traditional educational systems for low class, right? Public school, uh, went on to do her GED and then two master's degrees. And that kind of just taught me a lot about my identity in a stretched way because I'm not necessarily first generation, but I am um, only mm -hmm. because of the norms I can adapt to. And then the whole lens around being Afro-Latino, I mean, when I don't speak Spanish and people see me outside, they don't register anything other than light-skinned Black, like mm -hmm. my whole life, like, oh, what's up, light-skinned? And <laughs> um, in New York, that's huge, right? Because there are Dominicans there. And so we understand each other quickly. But when I moved to California back in 2014, I, I realized instantly like, oh, I'm not like every other Latino. And that thought haunted me a little bit, you know, and through therapy, I had to understand what that really meant. Um, Cause I wasn't trying to other myself from being Hispanic Latino, but <clears throat> it was just the way I was received. Um, mm -hmm. And like when I got to San Jose in 2014, I never, never been around so many Mexicans and it would it would be a surprise for people to say uh, to see me speak Spanish and like even when I would hear people speaking Spanish and I jump into the conversation they'd be like what and that yeah. I never felt before because in, mm. in the in New England in the Northeast like people that look like me speak Spanish right but at the same time uh, people that look like me are treated in many ways, the way that the United States has adopted a relationship to Black America. And so it's interesting. And that, yeah. that term Afro-Latino is loaded. Um, it drove me to do a 23 in me and, and 
That shit is all over the place. This is like 35% oh, how European. Was that? 30, I've been thinking about doing 23andMe. I'm like, oh, low-key, I want to do it. You have, you have to. I highly recommend it. It like definitely helped me recognize a lot of those feelings and thoughts and where they come from. And it also just further cemented like being Caribbean, being from the Caribbean, descending from the Caribbean, like you are a mix of Afro, uh, Indigenous, and European blood. Like literally down to the the perfect, like 33% European, 33% African, and the rest of it is like um, East Asian native. And I'm mm. like, <laughs> what? Okay, then. Uh, <laughs> No, it's interesting because I think like one of the most common things that I hear from first generation daughters, immigrants, you know, any, any Latinos that are whatever they, they identify as one of the things that I've been hearing really like in every conversation is I struggled with my identity. Am I American enough? Or what if they're multiracial? Like, am I, you know, Honduran enough? Am I Guyanese enough? Am I all of these things? And for you to do 23 and me, like I, that's why that's what's driving me to do 23 and me. I'm like, I just want to understand myself, my identity, where I come from, all of those things that I didn't learn in my family. I didn't learn in school. So it's interesting. You're inspiring me. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm glad that you see it that way. Honestly, for me, it was just answering that question. Like I was going nuts in like 2016, 2017, because I couldn't really put um, words to how I identified just from the way that people talk to me in all the different spaces. Like, I pick up the phone with my mom and she's like, Papi, tu ta, tu ta tu, tu ta I'm like, Ma, I'm good. I'm reading. I promise you I'm going to work. Like, I'm doing everything that I need to be doing. And then five seconds later, she'll be like, yeah, so the other day I was on the phone with this person and they told me, <laughs> I'm just like, yo, how'd you just switch? How'd you just switch so fast? And then it makes me feel like, am I like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanna I wanna touch on something because you you mentioned it. You you said people would just see you as the light skin, right? So Afro Latino, you said is really loaded. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience of being, you know, a black man in America, a light skin, however people wanted to identify you as, but how is that experience for you and how are you navigating what's going on in the world right now? Yeah, it's it's so much. Um, <clears throat> like, there's a lot of shame that's inherited um, with the color of your skin due to the colorism that's widespread. It's universal, right? But in the Caribbean, it definitely hit us hard. And to be honest, a lot of people can say that that's where colorism originated, where like race evolved from. Um, Christopher Columbus, smart ass decided to divvy people up according to the color of their skin. And obviously, like, I'm not, that's not my strong suit, the history of colonialism, but I definitely read into it. <clears throat> and what it looks like for me, when I was being raised in New York and in Massachusetts, um, my relationship to all the men in my life was really interesting because I was the lightest skin boy. And, like, my uncles... Mm are darker skin than me. My dad's darker skin than me. Like my grandfather is, if he didn't speak English, I mean, yeah, if he didn't speak at all, he would just be black in America. He's dark skin black. Um, mm -hmm. And so running around with the men in my family, right? Like I would see the way we're all treated differently. And I can't deny that. 
right? Because when I go eat dinner with mommy and, and you know, and the familia, my cousins and my uncles, um, we're all different colors. We look like Skittles. <laughs> so there's really, there's really no, there's really no way to introduce, there's no way to introduce race without talking about the colorism that exists because my mm-hmm. my youngest sister right now, six years old, is just a little bit lighter skin than me. And then my youngest cousin is three, four shades darker than me. They're around the same age and they're being raised together. Mm-hmm. They run away speaking Spanish. And so they run into their culture. But then when they step outside of the house and have to speak English, immediately it's you're black, you're light skin. And then it's yeah. like, okay, what's this category? What do you mean by light skin? Like, well, you're mm-hmm. not white right and then yeah. some people are like in the northeast more specifically still use like the term spanish like you're spanish but we're not from spain mm-hmm. right and then if yeah. i run around with jamaicans haitians puerto ricans and cubans we all know what we are right like yeah. we all look at each other we're like yeah caribbean as fuck like we're not actually <laughs> we're not you yeah. know what i mean like yeah and i yeah. mean some of that comes with a lot of ignorance especially when i got to california i realized I had to un- unpack a lot of like the prejudice and bias that is instilled in us in the Northeast when it comes to relating to the rest of Latin America. Uh, you know, it's just dumb shit. Like I, I would immediately be like, oh, Mexicans, like oh, y'all known for tacos, right? And it's like, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? You know, and just fighting over the way we make rice and beans and things like that. But when it comes to conversations around race in the United States, like seeing something so violent like what happened with George Floyd um may come as a surprise to a lot of people that weren't exposed to that growing up and like you know rest in peace to George Floyd condolences to his family um there's nothing that can really bring justice to the fact that black and brown men are being killed black and brown people are being killed um with with no reason other than just the hatred that a lot of people develop through ignorance. Um, yeah. But to me, I, <clears throat> I've always seen the thread with the way people are treated in systemic oppression. Um, because growing, being born into project housing, I, I saw, okay, when you're broke, people don't care about you. And you're concentrated in like un- small units and small communities where mm-hmm. you have to fight for everything. And then going, growing through high school and then college, college being the first predominantly white institution that I actually like felt comfortable in. Um, and I don't even know if that's the right term, felt comfortable, but like found myself like being, being fully immersed into, <clears throat> I saw a whole nother world. I was like, wait, there's, there's like the cafeteria is throwing away food. Whereas mm-hmm. when I grew well, up, we were fighting for la comida, no, hombre. <laughs> like, That was not a thing. And then I get to California working for Google, being part of the tech industry, and I'm like, oh, the entitlement is insane, like insane. And you just really start to stretch from a place of identity because every worker that wasn't a full-time employee that was the support staff and support service, um, like the kitchens, like cleaning, right, like setting up the desk spaces and stuff like that, are all black and brown people. And like, and it's funny because again, that light skin thing, they would yell at me. Like the black employees, black staff employees, were like oh, light skin, yeah, like light skin, come here. And like they just kind of knew. And then the brown employees, right, that speak Spanish, like 
if they overhear me speaking Spanish, there's an instant connection. Mm-hmm. And so, but then everybody that I work with was white. <laughs> and they didn't yeah. know what to say. They didn't know how to approach me. They're like, oh, your last name is kind of Spanish, but you're not yeah, Spanish. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right? Or somebody will be like, hey, Josh, you know, I saw like a Cardi B video once. That's kind of like you, right? Oh and I'm like, God. oh, <laughs> I mean, and then it's funny because they'll say that, but like my aunt literally will be like, bitch, let's get it. Like, I'm just like, oh, <laughs> yo. Like, and I can't really deny like so many things that are true, but also problematic. And it's just all of that comes into this weird intersection. Uh, yeah, dude, true, but problematic. That's a thing. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I love this conversation. I want to go deep into your story and I want to hear about it because I'm genuinely very interested in it too. Um, and I know it's going to be impactful because the, the reason I connected with you on LinkedIn was because first of all, I love when anyone's like vulnerable on LinkedIn and anyone's like willing to share a little bit about who they are outside of the workplace. And you posted something that was like, reflections you had just turned 28 I think something Mm. like that um and you shared all these things like 20 years ago my father was deported and that's the one thing I remember from that post and I'm like I don't know who this guy is but I'm gonna connect with him because that's dope that he's opening up about something like that so I want to hear about your story you know where you come from um to where you are now so I'll give you I'll give you the platform Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I was born in Manhattan, New York in 1992. That gives you all of it? All of it. (laughs) No, okay, so... um, Done. Close interview. Done. Done. We did it. Like, come on, what else? 92 was a a good-ass year, especially to be in New York. Come on. (laughs) That is the culture. No, um, so... No, my mom, my mom, like I said, was born in Queens, New York. My mom's mom, so my grandmother on her side, chased my great-grandmother, who immigrated from the Dominican Republic, but almost tried to run away from our family. So my great-grandmother on my mom's side tried to run away from our family. and She got to the United States, you know, to chase the American dream. And that's very complex because she then becomes Republican. Mm. And my and my great grandmother is like darker skin. Okay, mm. um, my grandmother's okay. lighter skin. Noted. So again, <laughs> so this thread on this like the way that we relate to race, right? My dad, he he doesn't have he un bandolero. Like he got deported because he was selling drugs, you know, and, mm. and he got caught. Um, but I can understand his story because he was trying to provide for his family. Um, and the way he got to the United States was on a boat, on a Yola, like from DR to Florida, then a truck from Florida to New York. I, like, I still am learning how to accept all of that, but that's, it's not even much for me to accept. It's just what happened. Like, he... Yeah. And that's a, and it's not an uncommon story, like especially from New York and Massachusetts. There's a lot of Dominican immigrant families in New York and Massachusetts. And um, my my mom, uh, her mom, my grandmother was very strict, and so she wanted to run away from the house because 
she was feeling a lot of stress and pressure and control at 13 years old. Mm. So she met my dad when she was 14, I believe, 13, 14. And got wow. pregnant on me when she was 15. Um, and my dad was 26 years old. And, you know, I was, so that's how we get to the beginning of the story, right? 92. <laughs> Um, and my mom wanted to move away from New York because there was a lot of obviously like drama with my family story due to the ways that my dad was trying to provide. Mm-hmm. So we had to move from New York to Massachusetts. And my dad wasn't the best dude in the world. Um, he he has now I want to say 21 kids. I'm the oldest and I'm 28. Um Okay. And yeah, I have Give us a, a lot of information. <laughs> yeah. Um, so all of that, the reason why I share all that is it shapes the way that I uh, moved through the world because a lot of people ask, where are you from? I'm like, I'm kind of from New York. I'm kind of from Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I was raised with my grandmother in New York. And then I was raised with my mom in Massachusetts, who as a young woman was working two jobs and going to school. So after school, I couldn't really see her until nine, 10 o'clock at night she was hustling and so I would be with my grandmother or a babysitter this woman sat a Dominican woman who spoke no English she was super Dominican she would keep me in line um and you know I would focus on my studies to make my mom proud and also just try to meet her expectations because she was always in my ear about not being like my father and yeah that that wasn't easy um yeah I'm sure that's a really heavy burden to carry it's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Uh, pressure makes diamonds. So <laughs> we kept it moving. Um, Joshua Encarnacion, y'all, and he's a diamond. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We had to keep a positive attitude. I mean, I just try to make mm-hmm. light of a lot of that pressure because there was so much going on at once. And my mom was really ambitious and she wanted to make sure we have a better life. So we pushed through. Um, we moved moved from New York to Lawrence, Massachusetts, and Lawrence doesn't have the best reputation for safety, Um, also very under-resourced. So this is another one of those black and brown communities where the world doesn't treat it in the best way possible. And there you, Mm -hmm. I mean, you you have no choice as a six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old to see the pain that's caused with the inequality around me. And like, I wasn't thinking all that deep when I was a kid, but it was just the fact that it was your reality. You know, it was just a reality. Like you fought kids for quarters so you can get bags of chips and that was okay. Like, yeah, you know, and, and you didn't really see your parents all the time, but you saw them enough to know you were loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and school was like, just, you just wanted to get through the end of the day without either a, a teacher threatening you to kick you out of class because you're a clown. Or B, getting into a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mom was really smart, moved us to Springfield, Massachusetts before high school because she didn't want me to attend the local high school in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which no offense to the school, but she knew from her experience going to the school that there was a lot of danger that was um, available. And I think really what drove her was that my father was there and he had um, his history in the city. And so our last name kind of meant something. Um, my last mm-hmm. name, I something. And when he got deported when I was nine years old, um, it was because he was shot 
at a club in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And that kind of just like put fuel behind my mom's efforts to keep us safe. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and so we moved to Springfield, Mass for high school. I was pretty pissed off. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I've forgiven my mom fully just yet. But <laughs> because I had friends. We're you like know, working on it. <laughs> working on it. I had a lot of friends and then I, we get to Springfield and it was probably the best four years of high school like that a kid could ever ask for. I had great friends that I still keep up with today. I learned a lot about who I am through sports. Um, I got really involved in whatever with whatever leadership meant at the time because I had a coach that just kept trying to like bring me to wanting to think about building teams and stuff like that. You know, I was like captain of the football team my senior year of high school and like big ass head you know you walk around with a varsity <laughs> jacket and you just think you're the man and you're really not yeah. you just you just think you are <laughs> you're walking so, around like hot shit <laughs> right um <clears throat> and then college kind of humbled me i was diagnosed with this heart condition atrial fibrillation where you literally get flatlined and shocked back and that's happened 13 times and i've had two heart surgeries and I, wow. when I tell people that, they're like, are you okay? Are you going to be okay? And then like that weekend, they'll see me drinking Red Bull vodkas and they're like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> you can't, or, or I put like, I put like Brugal in my cafecito because I'm drinking. Oh my <laughs> gosh. And they're just like, yo, you need to calm down. And I'm like, I'm fine. Like yeah. I'm actually, I go and do my You're like, listen, out. I've done this 13 times. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. And it gives you this disposition of just being grateful. Mm-hmm. Like you can't really fight. No one can really take that attitude from you when you've had a doctor ask you to sign papers saying that if you die, it's not their fault. And it's mm-hmm. like you're in a bed and you're like, uh, and if I don't sign it, they're like, well, yeah. we can't help you. You there's chances you might die from that condition. And so <clears throat> sharing, like having had that be a reality kind of just gave me this like YOLO mentality. Yeah. So all and the Red Bull vodkas. <laughs> all the Red Bull vodkas, but more so just not caring about people's opinions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I appreciate you saying like that, that you um, were attracted to the fact that I was being vulnerable on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like I wish it was an intentional effort. Like I really wish it was like a let me be vulnerable thing today. But literally, I can't, like, make that a fabricated thing. I almost have to dial back, which I'm sure you can. Really? Yeah. I mean, I can relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. How does that feel, though, having to dial back? Uh, You know, people are annoying. They always want you to be in a box. People are annoying. (laughs) They always want you to be in a box. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it makes people uncomfortable when we can share openly. I don't think people are used to it. And I think we are making strides to to be more open about it. I mean, this is really the the goal of this platform too, is just to have a space to have vulnerable conversations. Cause I'm like, where else do you can you have a conversation like this? It's like all about you, all about just being vulnerable, just be real. No, trying to act like you have everything together, like your XYZ, your hot shit with the varsity jacket. Right, right. <laughs> Big ass like, head. Just, Big yeah. ass head. 
What triggered like, it for who, you, though? Like, who are you, right? Like, that's really what the goal is. What triggered so. that thought for you? I'm so interested to hear, like, why. For me? Yeah. Um, Outside of what I you shared like, in your story. I know. I used to really not be vulnerable because I was never asked, like, what's your story? Tell me about yourself. Um, and it wasn't until someone asked me for work, actually, they're like, oh, tell me about yourself. And I'm like, oh, well, I was homecoming princess in college. And that means blah, 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 blah. And I was orientation leader and blah, blah, blah. And I had all these labels, all these titles. And I, again, varsity jacket, right? Felt like I was like the best of the best. Um, and then they were like, cool, but like, who are you, you know, outside of all those things, what, what gets you motivated? Like what fuels you, what this and that. And I'm like, I don't know. No one's ever asked me that. And so I really had to go through these, like (laughs) this like year of just identity, right? Like figuring out what my identity was and really stripping myself of all these titles of all these achievements that I thought made me who I was and really digging deep into who I am. And I realized I had really put behind my my cultura, my Latinidad. I had really put behind where I come from, which is, you know, San Diego hood. And I put behind my my catracha, you know, like everything that made me who I was, like being Honduran, being a catracha, like all those things are really important to me. But I realized when I was in those spaces of what made me feel like successful, I was a whole different person. And so I realized I'm like, why am I trying to act like someone I'm not in these spaces? Why can't I just show up as my full self? And it has been like literally years of practicing how to just be real, how to be myself and be vulnerable. And I just started asking all my friends, like, tell me about your story. I just kind of got obsessed with like asking people about their identity and really like digging deep and, and digging past what is on the surface. And then, yeah, just the birth of a lot of things led me to this point, but that's really like my passion for vulnerability really stemmed from that moment of who are you? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> oh man, that's like so refreshing to hear, especially when you say like practicing to be real, because I think people just I know feel like some folks got it and others don't. I know. I'm jealous of those who got it. I'm like, damn, that's the goal. <laughs> But going back to you, Joshua Encarnacion, <laughs> I love your name, dude. It's like, it's bomb, Thanks. own it. Um, when, you th- when you say it that way, it makes you remember that I should own it. But a lot of times yes. I told you, I just hear incarnation. No. Incarnation. Oh, my God. No, not incarnation. Not incarcerated either. That is so problematic. Man. Um, that- Um, but, um, one thing that I want to touch on real quick before we talk about, you know, your cultura and, and, you know, a little bit more about, uh, being Dominican, I want to touch more on your father being deported because it is very true. Um, it's not uncommon that, you know, our family members, our community gets deported for doing things that they feel like they have to do to support the family. Um, and there's, we can have a whole separate conversation on, on that, <laughs> on that alone, especially being undocumented and having to struggle and grind and do whatever it takes, but a whole separate conversation. Yes. 
I'm ready but to have we can it touch on it. Want. We can touch on it. I mean, recently, this is actually very special for me because um, a couple weeks ago, my uncle got deported after 40 years of building a life here. And it was hard for all of us. And it was also tough because he he got it. Basically, he was, he got a DUI. And it was one too many. And he got sent back. And, you know, he's older now. So it's not like he can, like, easily come back. Um, and so it was hard for all of us. And it was one of those things where, like, we never addressed this problem. You know, we never addressed his trauma. We never addressed the things that he was battling because it was just like, oh, he's he's just drinking. You know, we made those excuses for him. And little did we know there was so much happening below the surface. You know, there was no chance for him to be vulnerable and talk about what was going on. So and then there's other stories, right? Like working with a fake social security because you got to work <laughs> or working under the table. There's a lot of things like that that happen in our community. And again, I keep going to your story, which is in a way therapeutic for me because I'm like, this is something that happens so common and we can be, you know, the generation that breaks that cycle and that can really educate others on like, let's change immigration and let's change the way that we, you know, are in our communities and the way that black and, and brown folks are, are treated. No, that's, that's huge, right? And so I'm happy to be able to share whatever I share in a way that relates to other people in a therapeutic sense because <clears throat> I, I think the way that you're helping people share their stories in the most real and authentic way is going to give people a lot of strength and confidence and guidance in the sense that we are all more connected than we think we are. Mm-hmm. because I could feel the pain with what you're saying still so vividly because I remember when I saw my dad in the hospital, you know, bullet wound in his stomach and then super, it feels like a movie because it was so unreal with like four women on a windowsill, not realizing like those women are mother to, mother to my siblings that are all seeing him at once, who I didn't, I didn't even know ex- like existed mm-hmm. until that day. And then I don't see him again for another 16 years. Mm. And like the nine-year-old me had to learn to let go of that anger and that pain. And it was happening throughout the years and I didn't even know. Um, Not until I actually started going to therapy that I realized like I was letting go of that pain. And a lot of my drive to feel validated and seen and to accomplish came not only from that place, from that nine-year-old's like frustration with his father being ripped from him, but also from the pain that he caused my mother that forced mm. her to push me so hard. <clears throat> and, yeah, you know, I still, like, how do you attribute that? Like, how do you, like, because you got to kind of love, but you also kind of don't. And mm-hmm. so when I hear you talk about your uncle and the DUIs, like, you know, I'm, I have no right to feel a way for you, but I, I can relate in the sense of like, to my father, I'm, I always wanted to say like, dude, why are you in the club? Like you got so many kids. <laughs> why don't you mm-hmm. just go take care of them? Like, yeah. but you, you're nine, you don't have those words. 
And the mm-hmm. fact that you're thinking that way as a nine-year-old, like now I look at nine-year-olds and I'm like, please, no. Like, I don't want you to have <laughs> please. to Please. Like, I really just yeah. want you to just, yes, you can watch YouTube. Like, yes, we can play video games. Um, and so it's what, it's what you want for children to be children. But some of these situations force you to grow up faster than you could ever imagine. Yeah. So um, you were talking about your father, right? And talking about that experience. So talk about um, just how it happened and, you know, your feels through it and share a little bit about something that our community deals with a lot. I think it's real easy. So what what happened was honestly, from my perspective, like my mom is like, get in the car, Papi, we're going to go see your dad. And I'm just like, all right, cool. And then we're in the hospital. And like I said, I'm walking with my mom, I'm holding her hand, and I can almost feel like her presence being way higher than I, I can imagine, right? Like she's just like super tall. And I just hear, feel her hand. We walk into the hospital. There's a bunch of kids that look like me running around. I'm like, who are y'all? Like, that's my thought as a nine-year-old. Like, who are y'all? Why y'all look like me? Like, you're nine. You don't really know what's going on. You look to the right and you see all these women. And you're like, who are these people? But honestly, at that point, I was used to it because I would visit him and run mm-hmm. around with him every other weekend. And I would see all types of women everywhere. And like, that wasn't a normal relationship to that either. But it's something you had to grow out of. And then you see your dad like on a hospital bed. And obviously, he's not in good shape. He's crying. The first thing he says is, Besame la mano, papi, besame la mano. That's such a dramatic. <laughs> and I'm and like at I that didn't point, know that, so good to know. <laughs> Miss Amela Mano is like, show me respect, like, but you really actually have to kiss their hand. And I'm just like, oh, and at that point I already had this like rebellious attitude. I was already pretty angry and upset. And like again, in my house we speak all we all speak Spanish, but I go to school and they look at me and they don't think I speak Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. Or or you have this weird relationship with English as a second language where like I, I learned English as a second language, but I spoke English so well, I was in English speaking classes and we would make fun of the ESL classes. Like yeah. I'm nine yeah. years old and in my head, <laughs> I listen in Spanish, but I, I speak English and mm-hmm. I see other people speaking Spanish and I'm like, y'all go over there. <laughs> Yeah, it's so confusing. It's so confusing. I was the same way. My brothers all spoke English and Spanish, but my parents only spoke Spanish. So I felt I spoke English. And then I was in school saying like, yo quiero that. And they'd be like, what? Right, right. (laughs) And it was so confusing. So confusing. So confusing. And to relate it to Bobby on this bed, right? Like he's, he's speaking to me in Spanish, but in English, and I'm like judging him. And Mm. then, you know, I don't really know how we move through the world this way, but we kind of just all know sometimes what's going to happen. And I knew I was going to see him later. So I was kind of sad, but also like, I'll deal with you later. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and that's all I really can feel. But this is the thing that I feel happens very often to young black and brown men. There's a crucible in this moment, right? I remember going to my room and thinking like, I'm never going to cry. I really wanted to beat everything up. But mm. 
fortunately, like I have my mom and my sister. She's four years younger than me. And they wouldn't let me turn into that person. They were just like, no. Like, come here, Poppy. You're just mad. I'm like, you don't understand me. <laughs> like, I'm freaking out. <laughs> and like, it showed up a lot. You know, it, it definitely did over the years. I still deal with it all the time. Because I kind of just want to be like, I don't need emotions. And yeah. I, I see that with a lot of men. And it's because we're forced to be strong in the United States because we have to protect. But I don't think that's exclusive to men either. Like, I feel I've met a lot of black and brown women that are subject to systemic oppression and how deep all this shit is that say, I don't want to feel. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we end up relating to each other that way. I don't feel like we end up relating to each other that way. I know we end up relating to each other that way. Mm-hmm. We just start to call each other the worst, right? Like, the amount of times people would come at me, like, yo, men ain't shit. And I'm and and I'm like I agree. Like my, my father, like was, we're in the same boat. Same boat. What do you mean? Like I got just as hurt. Like yeah, um, yeah. But also then like the men in our community being like you know like not the best towards women, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get older and you realize like, wow, like all that came from just all this hurt and pain when we were younger, and we it wasn't even in our control. And there's so many layers to this, like first mm-hmm. generation conversation, race conversation, the language barriers, the norms. It's so complex. It takes years to get through it. But yeah, he was deported when I was nine. And then, like I said, I felt this feeling like I was going to see him later. Oddly enough, <clears throat> I get through college, find a job at Google my, at the end of my senior year changes my life completely like drastically we haven't even touched that because it's just mm-hmm. so much and then three years three and a half years being into this new life in california i meet a group of friends all dominican similar stories i mean like one's from lawrence massachusetts the other one's from new york the other one's directly from dr like all of us <laughs> have the same stories and we're all in san francisco running around and San Jose running around and Oakland running around and we all feel the same way like hey do do the Latinos here treat you the way that you are treated back east no do black people treat you the way you're treated back east no so what are we <laughs> like mm, then it, that's yeah. when you start to get that feeling like oh we're Caribbean oh we're Afro-Latino oh we, we have this whole complex identity that's just a mix of things with all these crazy stories right that's insensitive with all these complex stories but one of my friends says to me like look you make money now you can go wherever you want so how about you go to drc your dad and i'm like holy shit yeah i actually could go fly to see this guy Mm. and it's like three whatsapp messages before i connect with him again (laughs) like three like shout out (laughs) right well shout out the whatsapp my half brother who's older than my sister i hit him up he hits his mom up his mom hits his aunt up i have my dad's phone number and wow i'm like bah, i want to come visit you he's like oh mi lindo mi niño mi alma oh me encontraste que bueno tu, papi cuando tu vienes cuando tu vienes and he's just like <laughs> through the, right like through the roof like my son found me he's coming to see me 
And I fly to the Dominican Republic. I haven't seen him in 16 years. It's the first time I'm in DR. The second time. I was there when I was like four, but I didn't really remember. But I see him and it's like, we never was split up. And at this point, it's like irony because when I saw him in that bed, he was so much bigger than me. And when he saw me this time around, I'm I'm looking down on him. I'm five foot eleven. He's five foot five. I, the first mm-hmm. thought I thought was like, "Damn, mommy, how are you gonna date someone shorter than me?" But that was <laughs> that was problematic. That was problematic too. <laughs> but you know, I see him, and like all the pain kind of melts away. And I was just, if if I found any sort of joy and appreciation for that moment in the hospital was the fact that I didn't close up. And mm-hmm. so. To bring that back to what you said about the vulnerability, like I, I just couldn't, I, I can't not be vulnerable because I'm afraid of what would happen if I were to close off, and yeah, and I see too many of us closing off, and so what happens is we sacrifice our identity for some sort of acceptance in a world that really isn't designed for us, like mm-hmm. at all, at all. <clears throat> yeah, and um, a thousand percent true. Yeah, so I, I hope that that answers your question in terms of kind of what yeah. it was like and how it relates to our community. But there, there's so much commonality there with a lot of people's stories. So much, yeah. And I, I, that's the beauty of our, our community, our Latinos. You know, there's so much more to us and there's so many things that we collectively go through when we come to the U.S. And there's so much common ground that we don't even realize, you know? So much common ground. I want you mentioned this and I'm really curious. How did you get from the East to Google? <laughs> I want to hear a little bit about that journey. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's a lot of finesse in all of this, as you can imagine. Um you just, heard the story. It's a scrappy about way, day. you know. It's just who just we are. <laughs> That's who we are. It actually it actually relates back to something you said earlier too that I have not forgotten. Right? Somebody asked you, like, who are you? Mm-hmm. And that brought you on this journey, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever that person is, tell them I said thank you. Um, but <laughs> I had that similar experience in college, and it was after I was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. So, mm-hmm. AFib, I can't play contact sports. Big ass head from playing football, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I became the man playing football. Yeah. Like, I was captain of the high school football team, and then I got to college, and I was a starter my freshman year. Yeah, varsity jacket. No me olvido. <laughs> no, no, nobody, nobody will forget from those nobody. years. Nobody. Yeah. But you know, that's going to be the name of the of, of the episode: <laughs> varsity jacket. <laughs> you know, it's so ironic. I actually lost it. I think that was God too. <laughs> yeah. He was, like, he was like, you know, I'm tired of this. <laughs> so humilde. Man. But yeah, playing football got ripped away from me because I couldn't mm-hmm. do contact anymore. So I had to ask myself, like, what is important to me? Because I can't play sports. So think about it. You do four hours of practice a day. You play video games that are all football. You have all friends that are in a locker room all day talking about sports. Yeah. You watch ESPN. And then one day the doctor says you can't do any of that. So I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do with my time? Yeah, (laughs) for sure. And and you don't want to be depressed thinking about this heart condition. Mm -hmm. So I got wrapped up into this leadership seminar in college and I met my mentor 
Dr. David Milstone, old white Jewish dude who I'd have never mm-hmm. thought I'd have a relationship with. But at that point, I guess I was still searching for that father figure. And he, he was a great mentor. He asked me who I wanted to become beyond who I am today. Mm-hmm. And I was in the College of Engineering because mommy was like, all right, so you don't want to be a baseball player. You want to play football. You're definitely going to be an engineer. Because from, from the Caribbean, it's doctor, engineer, lawyer, unless mm-hmm. you're Alexander Rodriguez, right? <laughs> and I already, I, I already gave up my baseball bat for a football. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I wasn't going to win on this one until I met him. And he was like, look, like, I understand that those are your mother's expectations. What are your expectations of yourself? And mm-hmm. I switched out of the School of Engineering into the School of Business because I wanted to work in human resources. At that point, I had already understood that like the work that I was attracted to was connecting people, but I had a very scientific mind, a very numbers-oriented right. mind. Right. So I was like, I could be a manager for engineers. Mm. <laughs> and that was the whole thought process behind it. But never did I think I was going to be in California. What happened was a teacher pissed me off in college. They... Oh. <laughs> they, Yeah, um, (laughs) Professor Paul Van Dyne, shout out to Paul Van Dyne. He, uh, I, I used to come to class like one minute before they closed the door and that would always piss him off. But I was the type of kid that would read every single book before the semester started. Like I, I love reading. Right. Mm. But like, it's not in a forced, like I read more books than you weigh. Like I genuinely think it's almost therapeutic for me. It's like where I can focus. Yeah. Um, and so I would read all the books and I would tell him that, like, oh, I already read the books. Like, just give me the exams. Like, there's no point in me sitting here as you're telling me the book. Right. <laughs> but I, that was such an asshole thing to say. I didn't know. Because <laughs> in the School of Engineering, you can act like that. Like, you can say, like, oh, yeah, I read the books. Like, I don't need to come into class. And your engineering professors are like, OK, cool. Yeah. Like, get out of here. Like, I want to do experiments, not talk to you. Um, and in the yeah, school of business, it's like, <laughs> yeah, seriously. In the school of business, it's like, you got to dress up, you got to write. And I have none of that. Yeah. Like, I'm coming in, Tilo de, like, I'm coming in with a champ hoodie <laughs> and a New York Yankees fitted and, like, white Air Force Ones and, like, Adidas sweatpants. And the professor's like, you're never going to make it in business looking like that. And, like, that's the first time that mm-hmm. I kind of registered, like, that's a little bit racist. But... I'm just going to see what's going on here. And he kind of challenged me. He was like, if you can get an internship this fall semester, you don't have to take the rest of the class. So we had a career fair that weekend. And that weekend, I got an internship in Boston. That internship led to me meeting more people that were very, quote, quote unquote, racist, because I was in the heart of Boston and I would get looked at funny. They're like, who are you and why? Um, And why? And being the only non-white person on the floor really does shape your experience of corporate America. State Street Bank in the heart of Boston. My second day on this internship, I got written up for wearing green socks under my suit that came from Walmart because I didn't have a suit, right? So Mm. I thought wearing these green socks would be cool. They were like, strike one. And I was like, what? And I look around and it's all white people. All white people, and I'm, they're all miserable too. That was the part that I recognized always. Because when I think mm-hmm. back to that internship, You're like these people are not happy, <laughs> not happy, and it's gray cubicle walls, and no one talks to each other, and you can't express anything. And again, like 
my overly mm-hmm. vulnerable ass is like, let's connect. Yeah. Yeah. And none of that. Um, and in there, one of my internship managers was just super passive and dismissive, like super passive and dismissive, and said something at one point like, hopefully you get a job at a big innovative tech company one day where you can use your ideas. By the way, get my coffee. I was like, I didn't know if that was a compliment or a joke. And like, maybe I wasn't equipped to be part of that environment. And that's just the norms. Like I watched the office and shit like that. And that's how they talk to each other, but it was real life. Wow. And I don't think they had any clue or understanding that I'm a kid from project housing doing this for the first time. It's the first person in my family to ever get an internship. So mm-hmm. I took it to heart. And I was like, yeah. okay. Yeah, I'm going to get a job at a big-ass innovative tech company. <laughs> so, like, Ooh, from yeah. right then, right fucking there. That's the diamond to, forming, right? That's the problem. <laughs> there's the diamond forming. Um, I went to Twitter. I went to Twitter, and I just started tweeting at recruiters. Like, literally, just random people. Like, Google recruiters. Hey, can y'all review my resume? Do y'all have open positions? Are y'all hiring? Like, every five minutes. And I got a lot of people to write back to me. And ultimately, I had like 10, 12 interviews before graduating college doing exactly that. And wow. I I failed my first interview with Google in like August of 2013. And I was invited back for another one, October 2013. And then I got the job offer in January 2014. And, you know, my recruiter was like, are you going to move to Mountain View, California? Like we have a we have an office in Austin or Mountain View. And I was like, what about the one in Boston? And they were like, that role doesn't exist there. And I was like, I didn't say this to her, but in my head, I was like, fuck it, we're moving to California. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would have been impressed if you told that, if you told her that. <laughs> nah, I did I did it. I probably today, I, nah. <laughs> nah. Nah. But nah. nah. Oh, I did get to know her and she was that chill. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think I would ever point being like that, that whole sequence was just like very much driven out of like somebody challenged me. And then mm-hmm. I realized that kind of just brings a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, so, there's so much power in, in mentorship and having those people that see you right. And see you for what you can be. And now what, I don't know their prejudice of you or like whatever they think of you. I mean, I've had my moments, right, where people are just like, um, I don't know. I, You know, they don't take the time to get to know me. They don't take the time to see me. They're just like, they see me as a student or an employee or just whatever. Oh, that's just Jasmine, you know. <laughs> but with seeing that, you know, the people that really see you, like, they literally change your life. And that's what it sounds like for you, too. Like, you had those little Los Angeles, you know, around that really, like, led you to to where you are now yeah dr david milstone was a big on it <laughs> like yeah he, he made sure to be there when there was a lot of pain but yeah it, yeah it drove me to do what i do today and honestly what i do today is i teach a lot of people on how to do exactly that like yeah so what do you up. do today talk about it <laughs> um, what are you up to now i so i'm running an organization that I helped build back in 2015. I left for a couple of years and then came back. <clears throat> and what we do is coaching. So mm. 
along the lines of what you're talking about, seeing people and helping them develop the skills they need to navigate the tech industry. For now, it's the focus on the job search process and really the two skills that we develop in people that come to our to use our services is computer science fundamentals. So all the math mm. and science behind the technical interview process. And then emotional intelligence, which is I think something that comes second hand to us um, in the Latino community because mm-hmm. we're always trying to navigate people. But being able to codify that so that other folks can relate to it and also so it can A, soften people that are not used to connecting with people on this level mm-hmm. and B, embolden people that are used to connecting with people on this level, but just not with people different from them. And so if I'm being more direct, right, it's like I work with a lot of white men that have that's, that issue with expressing themselves, and I see that create these imbalances in power in the industry. Mm-hmm. But then I also see a lot of black and brown people that want to be part of the tech industry that will not take the risk to connect with these people that are already there for whatever reason like lack of understanding yeah. of the process, lack of confidence, or lack of a support system. And so I'm really proud of what we're building. So Alco Inc. is short for outcomes-based learning. We just, right mm-hmm. now we run two classes um, a month that help people do the job search process. 60 employees of 65, five people are white. So like, it's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's a lot of it's different experiences. <laughs> <It's a certain laughs> um, there's a lot of blending cultures and identities and we have these conversations all the time uh, yeah but we're trying that's to powerful too yeah yeah for sure all right so i know we're running out of time and we've had um just an amazing conversation so thank you for being vulnerable and that being your nature like that's there's so much power to that I'm I'm a big believer that vulnerability is is power. And so just thank you, you know, for being real with us, being open and talking about your your story. But I want to do our cafecito and cheese part, which we already touched on because you already talked about what you do. But I want to ask you one question because one thing that I really want to do with this podcast is educate people on culturas, you know, Latinidad doesn't look one way. And no, we're not all Mexican or, you know, that's what a California, it's what we, <laughs> that's what a lot of people think. Um, and there's so much diversity to, to, to our community. So let's talk about your Dominican cultura. Let's do it. So Dominicano. Dímelo, Dímelo, dímelo cantando. Um, <laughs> if you had to choose one thing, your favorite thing about being Dominican, what would it be? And why? That's so hard. How can it be one thing? <laughs> How can it be one thing? Um, one thing, but you can talk about other things if it comes up. Okay. It's the food, the dancing, but what's what brings those things So you're like me, everything. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I guess if it's one thing, because you just have one thing, talk about other things. Um, it's just the spirit that we bring to everything that we do. Like mm. everything's a party. Like, 
all yeah, the time yeah. and it never stops and it just feels so like present with everything that we do but no I mean la comida de nosotros like un, un penil aromoro um, platano maduro like oh, platano. Just, we have that in common <laughs> just being able to eat food that you know is comforting um, like and also just tastes good as hell like some sancocho mm-hmm. right now would be perfect Every night I'm cooking, especially now in quarantine, mm-hmm. you know, being home to the front. Oh, pues sí. And in the bay, that's yeah. not a lot. Our way, so we have to cook. <laughs> and then the dancing, like bachata, come on, Real Santo plays everywhere. And it's because that three step rhythm, unstoppable. Um, yeah. Ozuna and what he's doing with the culture, right? Like, a lot of Ozuna's music are those Dominican rhythms just taken to a more modern place. Um, yeah. And so Ozuna's my favorite, by the way. Like out of every out of all of them, Anuel, out of you know, Bad Bunny, like Osuna. He's my he's my guy. <laughs> Here's another one if you want to get real Dominican and Alpha, he's big on Dembo. And Dembo mm. is probably what every Dominican wakes up feeling like. Because Dembo <laughs> is just high tempo doom, 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 the whole time and mm. it's where we get to get our perriando on perriando is, that's super perriando super Puerto Rican but like I know a lot of Dominicans I'd love to, to be yeah there. I think that's across the board too <laughs> I love it I love it um one thing that I do want to say is like I've been seeing so many more Dominicans out there and it's so beautiful. Like um, Medi, have you heard of her? Mm-hmm. She's amazing. She's a Dominican woman. Um, Danny Lay, Sasha Medici, she's a comedian. There's so I've been seeing so many of them, and I'm like, too, this is amazing. And I love being able to see more Latinos represented, you know, whether it's Dominican, Cuban, Puerto Rican. There's a lot of Puerto Ricans, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's beautiful to see more representation and show the diversity in Latinidad because it for sure does not look one way. No, not at all. And if I can for you, I can shout out a couple of Dominicans that are making um, a big splash in the world (laughs) in ways that I don't think people would expect. But Encanto Perez, um, working at Facebook, building out different programs. Mm-hmm. Giselle Ruiz, who is that friend that brought me to reconnect with my father. Um, she's a talent mm-hmm. manager for TikTok. Like, she's literally responsible for hiring yes. TikTok. Yeah. Liliani Pimentel, back in Boston, uh, she's working in the hospital system there. And so it's making direct contact with the folks that are uh, playing with the coronavirus um, impact. And there's just so many more people. Um, Juan Marte, no, Austin, uh, yeah. Adrian Rodriguez, uh, who's I think running around in New York. <laughs> One of my teammates actually at Alco, uh, his name is Jose Pichardo. We call him Papi Chardo. Papi Chardo <laughs> is the best Papi name Chardo. ever. Like, that is, I don't even know him, but I'm gonna call him that. <laughs> Yo, like Papi Chardo, that's the best name of all time. And me and him just came back and we get to be super Dominican when we're just hanging out because there's no uh, no other way to be, right? Like pulling mm. together. <laughs> we actually just kicked it the, like two weekends ago and we had Aromoro, Platano Maduro, um, Maca Frita. Things. 
all the things and just like so dominicano and, or qué? <laughs> so you're like yeah <laughs> but yeah there's so many people that i think um are starting to make a difference for what being dominican means in the united states of america mm -hmm. because back on the island we don't need to talk about diversity we understand that we have so many ways to show up but in the united yeah. states of america it's either you're playing baseball making music <laughs> or that's it <laughs> yeah i'm like damn i feel hella bad because i mentioned like pop culture people <laughs> No, I mean, and, and it's but just the I way mean, that we relate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, like, I had to admit to the ignorance I came to California with because of the way that we get treated and the way that we think to treat other people, even when we're closer than what we think we are. So mm -hmm. I don't blame any, I don't blame or judge anyone anymore. I kind of just have love for all folks and wherever they are in terms of their process and what they're learning about us. Mm -hmm. And they're there and yeah. hopefully they see a different side so i appreciate yeah, no, you for, for doing sure. this for sure for sure and i want to thank you for giving them a shout out like that's huge it's so important and so let's wrap up <laughs> um one thing i do want to touch on real quick is how can people connect with you you know if they want to like talk to you learn about outco um or just you know connect with you what's the best way so I'm off of a lot of social media. I'm on LinkedIn. You can always connect with me there. And I respond. I reply. It's me. Um, my email, joshuaenc at gmail.com. I'm pretty responsive. Um, people want to connect with me there. And to learn about Outco, you can check out our website, outco.io. Um, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. But yeah, email is the best. All right. Perfect. Well, let's close this conversation. You know, I could talk to you forever. It's just casual conversation. Cabecito and chisme. I loved listening to your story, hearing about your cultura, all of the things. But unfortunately, we have to close. <laughs> but let's close with the brindis. And um, I, brindis, you know, I have cafecito. I don't know what you got with you, but I got my little cafecito with my new cup that says, make jefa moves. <laughs> Um, but I really want to close with the brindis and I want to, oh, yours says dream. Love that. But let's manifest some good for, for our Latino community. Um, so I'm going to give you the chance to say what we're going to cheers to. Cheers to staying vulnerable and being open, sharing yourself in ways that people would never expect, helping them learn a new part of us. Yeah. Salud. Salud. Gracias, mi gente, for tuning into today's episode. I hope y'all laughed, nodded, and snapped along to Joshua's story. In this episode and many others before, we touch on Latinidad and identity in America. We also talk about representation or lack thereof. So here's some big news for Nuestra Raza y Culturas. The U.S. House of Representatives voted last week to approve the creation of a national museum for the American Latino. This is progress, y'all. Let's keep sharing our stories and making our mark on the world. Remember to tune in next week for more Cafecito and Chisme and more Hello Latino love. Follow me on Twitter at Oladis Jasmine, Instagram at Ojasmine with four A's and find me on LinkedIn. Con mucho amor, tu amiga Noreña.